Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright. And this week on the show, we have Daniela Romero. Yes, we do. And it was a great interview, really fun. And um, she's just really smart about a lot of things. Yes, we we talked to her about quite a few different things. One thing she was really passionate about was um, writing diverse characters. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. talked about that and um, how she incorporates diverse characters into her writing and tips she has for people who want to do that. Right. And um, we talked about merchandising and yes. Patreon mm-hmm. and yeah, it was really good. We had yeah. lots of good stuff in this interview. Yeah. She's gone all out on merchandising. So that's really cool. Some really good ideas in that too. And uh, she also said that one of, she always tries to take one thing away from a conference if she's there, like, you know, just one actionable thing that she mm-hmm. can do. Which brings us to the fact that we're both going to be at InkersCon on June 3rd yes. in Dallas. So if you're going to go, please reach out to us in advance and we'll try to all get together and get a coffee or a drink or something and um, or just say hi. Yeah. We would love good. that. And I think there are t- still tickets available, aren't there? Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, so and to the, the virtual or the in-person. So Yeah, and the virtual you have access to for quite a while. Yeah, you can you do, do all the, you can see all the panels and mm-hmm. speakers. Yeah. So, yeah, so we will both be there and we would love to see you if you're there. Right, so, we're doing um, a panel on writing a series with mm-hmm. Kimber Swain, so that'll be fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to see you. So what's been going on with you this week? Well, I've been out of town. I got mm-hmm. to go to the beach. Awesome. My family, so vacation was mm-hmm. had. It was great. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't get sunburned, and I didn't do much work. I took my laptop, and I had to check an email every once mm-hmm. in a while. But yeah, that was about it. And it's been great. And then, right. yeah, can I get get back in the swing of things? Yeah, this yeah. coming week. I know it's <laughs> it's hard when you take a week off and you don't do anything. So, but it's yeah. good for you. I'm not saying yes. it's bad. It's oh my good. goodness. The ideas. I have so many ideas oh, for so many great. things. Yeah. It's just like, it's, you know how we talk about how when you're writing, uh-huh. you're like always working because you're yeah. plotting in your head or you're seeing situations right, or right, right. characters and things. So yeah, plotted some uh, short stories actually Oh, on wow. the way over and on the way back, which I never do, but I got mm-hmm. to thinking about it. I was like, you know, this might be a cool idea. And so we talked about it in the mm-hmm. car and kind of got mm-hmm. some ideas, have not written a word of it. But mm-hmm. it's there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was the drive. Long. <laughs> so long. But not, but you know, doable. Yeah. So, but I'm definitely glad to be home. So yeah. what about you? What have you been doing? Uh, well, I uh, got back from Scottsdale last Saturday and then we're recording this on Sunday, the thir- 15th. 15th. Yeah. Um, so last Saturday I got back from Scottsdale, but I was in Dallas, and so instead of having my husband drive up to get me because he had to come up this weekend because we had a dance recital for my grandchildren, um, I just stayed at my mom's all week, which, you know, there's nothing like staying with your mom all week <laughs> if you got a mama like mine. It was really great, and um, 
it was, I'm glad I did. I think she needed me there and I needed, I kind of needed to be around her for a little while. And, uh, but I did work uh, all week. I did, I think I had a consulting call every day, but one. And on that day, I did a coaching call with Becca Syme for myself. So um, we talked about the secret project. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was good. It was a good week. Well, good. Yeah. Yeah. So is the secret project still on? Uh, it's still on. Awesome. Still okay. On, yeah. We're yeah. we're waiting with bated breath until you can <laughs> tell us more. But we will leave that more. Okay. Okay. But um before we go, I did want to mention that um weeks and weeks ago we talked about um writers and readers helping stuff for Ukraine, like doing fundraisers yes. and things. Yes. And there's a link in the show notes and it's still there. And I know that it's that's not talked about as much. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like not discussed as much but that link is still there and there's still people doing fundraisers all kinds of reader and creative people doing creative fundraisers so if we're still thinking about you even though you know we don't mention it and it's in the show notes right and the need is still great yeah yes it is well very good well let's get on with the show because uh daniela has a lot of stuff to teach us and talk about and i think everybody's going to really love it Yes, sounds good. All right, here's Daniela. So today on the podcast, we are really excited to talk to Daniela Romero. Hi, Daniela. How are you? Good. How are you? We're great, and we're very excited you're here. Yeah, so we have lots of questions, but let me read your bio first. Daniela Romero is a USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. She enjoys writing steamy, new adult and paranormal romance that delivers an emotional roller coaster. Her books feature a diverse cast of characters with rich and vibrant cultures in an effort to effectively portray the world we all live in. She is a Bay Area native, though she currently lives in Washington State with her sarcastic husband and their three tiny terrors. In her free time, Danielle (laughs) enjoys frequent naps, binge reading her favorite romance books, and is known to crochet while watching watching television because her ADHD brain can never do just one thing at a time. (laughs) I understand that. Yeah. So tell us, how did you get into writing, Daniela? Um, so I used to be a book blogger oh, okay. and, and that kind of started it all. Um, I book blogs for a few years and then I entered a cover design contest by, um, mm-hmm. at the time she was called may I design, but now I think she just goes by her name, Regina Wamba mm-hmm. and I won and I was like, Oh crap, I got to write a book now. <laughs> <laughs> Not uh, the incentive, huh? <laughs> so I wrote a book And, um, for just like background, my degree is in PR and marketing. So I wrote the book and then I marketed and promoted my book and it made money. And I was like, Ooh, I could do more of this. And it kind of just (laughs) snowballed from there. Okay. When was this? When did you release your first book? Um, my first book launched in 2015. Okay. Very good. (laughs) So we're going to have some kid background noises in this podcast, which is totally fine. (laughs) So um, what is your definition of success? Um, So for me, success is very much financially driven. Um, I am not a huge believer in like accolades um, because I've gotten them and I don't feel like they've made any difference in my career. (laughs) Um, So for me, success is largely financially driven. And I guess my version of success was um, getting to leave my day job and then earning enough that my husband was able to leave his day job. That's great. That is great. When did that happen? 
Um, my husband left his day job in June of last year and oh, I left mine in 2020. Wow. That's just fantastic, Danielle. That's awesome. I know that's the dream for a lot of people. Yes. But I feel like the, the universal goal <laughs> <laughs> in many ways. Yeah, it is. So what do you wish you'd known about writing and craft when you got started? Um, I mean, I, I, as far as craft goes, I wish I really had a better understanding of story structure. Mm-hmm. Um, my very first series, every book ended on a cliff and not a natural cliff where it was like, and here's this one thing that, you know, you'll get to look forward to in the next book. It was kind of like the book just ended and there were a bunch right. of loose ends and people were like, what the heck happened? <laughs> um, and I actually, that series have since unpublished because I would like to rework it and it, it still made good money. But I guess for me as a writer, I really wish I understood the nuts and bolts of story structure better um, mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. So, so how did you get better at it? Did you, uh, did you take courses or did you just keep writing or keep reading or? I think the more you write, then mm-hmm. the better the better your story structure gets. I've always, I guess my entire writing career, I've been a reader and I, as a book blogger, I was a binge reader. Um, mm-hmm. So even now as an author, I still probably read a book every two to three days, oh, wow. um, which is, is cutting back from me pre-writing, but it's still more than I think most people around me. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot <laughs> on top of your writing. So, so I think it was a lot of just um, the more books I wrote, the more I understood. I do think that romancing the beat was insanely helpful, but wouldn't have been helpful at the time because I didn't start as a romance author. Uh, um, yeah. I started as an as an urban fantasy author. So I think that my my writing got significantly stronger when I made the jump into romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, I find that book <laughs> so helpful when I'm writing my books. It just really is a little blueprint. Yeah. And I will say I don't follow it, but I make sure all of those beats are there. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of known for not. Again and again. That's mentioned a lot. So it's a really popular Mm -hmm. book. Yeah. Well, coming from a background in PR and marketing, is there anything that you wish specifically you had known about marketing books or do you feel like that was kind of. Did that come easier to you? Um, so having a better grasp of Facebook ads back in the day would have been insanely helpful. And um, that wasn't really what what people were doing when I first launched my first release. And I know I said 2015. I actually take that back. I'm pretty sure it was 2010 because it lines up with one of my kids' birthdays. Um, so when I, like blog tours were the thing, right? Yeah. So I did a ton of that, like a ton of, I call it like the hustling work where you're just like constantly, like virtually pounding the pavement. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, and that did well, but then when that shift happened and now we see that blog tours aren't really effective, I didn't at the time have the knowledge of Facebook advertising to make a quick shift. Mm -hmm. So that took a lot more time. There was obviously a dip in sales for a couple months while I figured myself out. Um, it would have been helpful if I kind of just had a better understanding of Facebook ads. And even now I would love to understand the Amazon ads and I still don't. <laughs> I think that Amazon ads are just kind of strange. It's really hard to get them to 
It feels so much like throwing spaghetti at the wall. Yeah. And I think I could understand them better if their analytics were better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Until there's, until there's stronger reporting, it's really, it's just a guessing game. Yeah. It is. And that, that is concerning for me. Um, In the beginning, that's what I used. And it pretty much was, am I making more than I'm spending? Yes. Okay. I'm good. And to some extent, that's still how it is, but I'm not running Amazon ads right now because I'm not making more than I'm spending when I run them. And that's, you don't have a ton of analytics to go off of. And that just. Well, and it's hard too, if you're running different ads, right? Like I, if I'm running Facebook ads and then I want to go and throw spaghetti at the wall with Amazon ads. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to know which one is like, is one is Facebook making up for. Right you know, the loss on Amazon or vice versa, it's really hard to tell. So the only way to tell is to stop your Facebook ads, which are working and see, you know, run tests on Amazon ads. And for me, that's just too scary. So I don't Mm -hmm. do it. (laughs) Well, um, next question. What assumptions did you make at the beginning of your writing career? And looking back, did they turn out to be right or wrong? Oh, I assumed I could write a book a year. Yeah. Um, and that was very, very wrong because as a book blogger, the bulk of what I was reading and reviewing at the time were traditionally published books. Right. Sure. Um, so when my first book came out and did fairly well, I thought I had plenty of time. And then uh-huh. I started, you know, seeing the reviews of people asking when the next one, when the next one, and I was like, Oh crap. Um, so that was probably my biggest incorrect assumption. Uh huh. Um, and then I assumed that readers would stay loyal, which not to say that they're not, but that I wouldn't have to work so hard to regain like book one, book two, book three mm-hmm, mm-hmm. readers when you have gaps in between. Mm-hmm. Um, I fail to take into consideration that readers do kind of forget you mm-hmm. if you go too long. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And how often do you put out a book now? Put books out? My goal is three to four books a year. I don't have a set schedule. I just don't release around the holidays. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good idea. So for many reasons, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) So how did you go from um, planning to write one book a year to writing three to four books a year? Did you have to change up the way you were doing things or did it come easy to you to write fast, to write more books? Um, so I'm, I'm definitely not a fast writer, but I am an under pressure writer. Um, (laughs) so I have kind of learned that the more I add to my plate, the more I get done, I might not ever get all of it done. Um, and I think that that is like my ADHD kicking in, right? I really have to be overwhelmed to get a lot of things done. Wow. Sorry, he's having so much fun next to me. Um, <laughs> so I think I just I started setting pre-orders. And then as we got closer, it was like, oh, then, you know, you really kick it into drive. Mm-hmm. Um, also, when I made the genre shift from urban fantasy to romance, the stories came a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that same. I don't know if you guys ever feel this way when you're with the same character for a considerable length of time or numerous books, you kind of get sick of them after a while. <laughs> yes. Um, Familiar. And my very, 
My very first series was an urban fantasy series, Single Point of View, um, with the same heroine for six books. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah, that's... And I was so done with her (laughs) by the time time I hit, like, book four. Um, So that making the jump over to romance, where most of my books are interconnected standalones, Mm -hmm. has been kind of like a breath of fresh air. And when it does turn into a duet or a trilogy, it's like, oh, this is fine. Anything less than six is totally fine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I worry sense. about that too. You know, if if I were to switch genres or just getting tired of the same character or or coming up with fresh ideas for the same character, um, I do read a lot of urban fantasy, and so the the authors who do it well and keep things really fresh and really exciting, I, I'm just in awe because it really is hard mm-hmm. to do that. Well, um, I totally agree on that. That like long series have certain challenges of their mm-hmm. own and that they can be very difficult to propel them for me past like seven, eight, nine, ten books, unless it's set up a certain way. And if it's set up to go more episodic, I can handle it. But yeah, it can be really hard to uh, stay interested yourself and keep the audience interested too in what's continuing to happen. So I can totally see changing. Mm-hmm. So we like to talk about um, mistakes we've made and lessons we've learned. So um, have you ever had a mistake that turned out to be a good thing? Um, I mean, I think that they're all good things in terms of learning opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't say that I ever made a blunder that happened to work out in my favor. (laughs) Well, that's okay. (laughs) Um, the I guess I guess the only yeah yeah I guess the only one that I can think of is on and it's not a good one. Um, (laughs) it, It financially was a good one, but it's not a good one. Um, on my very first book, I wrote um a. A tr- like it was a tropey book and a reader decided it was too similar to another well-known popular urban fantasy author's books. Um. And prior to that author reading my book, they kind of took that reader's comments and ran with it on Twitter. Um. And later when they walked it back, it was too late, right? Mm-hmm. The, the damage was already done. So from an emotional author level, I was devastated from a financial level everybody read my new book because they wanted to go see what was so what everybody was talking about Mm. right right but still Um, that's hard so so I would say that to maybe the only but it wasn't really a mistake either that I made it was just I followed common urban fantasy tropes right um and that particular reader, unfortunately, didn't recognize that that there are certain things that are just tropey in the genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> tough. And yeah. I mean, so it. But she did come back later and say that the author did say that it wasn't. Yeah, she walked it back. Um, the only thing she did leave one thing, and she felt like I took a word. Mm. Um, and a said it was akin to like other authors using the word muggle that was coined by JK mm. Rowling. Oh, okay. she, she felt like I took a word, um, which was an abbreviation for the Lycanthropy virus. 
And there was like her opinions, just nothing I can do about it. I, for my benefit, posted blogs and my sources and stuff on social media um, about like the reference books that I utilized for, for research and like the paranormal world and whatnot, Mm -hmm. where that word is repeated numerous, numerous times. And it was a book that was published 10 years prior to her first. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, it was one of those things like, I can't, there's nothing I can say that makes her think that she doesn't own it. Um, But I've, you know, it's out there in, in the interweb that I didn't take it from her that here are multiple Mm -hmm. other places that it can be found. And it just, it is what it is. I don't mess with it anymore. Right. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate that you did what you needed to do and then you left it alone. Uh, there, there are other people probably like me who would just want, you know, <laughs> want to be vindicated, but you got to. Oh yeah. Just- you go through, you go through a really interesting period where like you, you really want to justify yourself and you like, right. I got, and, and when somebody says that your book is too similar to somebody else's, as soon as I feel like you get bitten with that. They just want to piece apart every mm-hmm. little thing. Like the things that I got hit for, um, and this was for other ones, but like for this book, but it was kind of like, they just wanted to dogpile onto it. So it was like, I must've stolen this particular thing from the Anita Blake series because my heroine really liked coffee and mm. only the only Anita Blake could like coffee. And I was like, yeah. Really, but we're all overworked PIs in urban fantasy. Well, Everyone's <laughs> gonna drink coffee. <laughs> um, so it, it got really it got really obnoxious, like things like that. And I finally was just I had a publicist at the time um that I was working with and she was like, You kind of just gotta let it go. Like she's like, You know that you did nothing wrong. You know that you're you know that it's a good book. The reviews backed me up on it. It's just Goodreads got ugly. Um yeah. Ooh, yeah. As, yeah. as it can. Yes. And she goes, if you just, she's like, you're making money. Stop trying to defend yourself. If somebody really wanted to go and dig, she's like, post it on your blog. You post it on your social media accounts. The information is there. You just got to walk away. Right. Um, and I did. And, and it all got better after that. That's yeah. great. That's great. That's probably a good lesson. To, uh, <coughs> they learned about just kind of walking yes. away, doing what you I can wish- and then walking away. I wish I didn't have to learn it on my very first book. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but it, it was definitely a good lesson to learn. And like I said, from a financial standpoint, it was actually beneficial because this person yeah. was significantly larger than I am. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it sent readers my way. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's really common now in this world with the internet. And it makes it really easy to be critical and to say things that we would not say to somebody's face. And right. it's just can just get out of hand so quickly. So it really well, can. Um, one of our other questions is um, what's the biggest mindset change um, you've had to make? Would that be something different than what you just talked about? Or would there be something else that comes to mind? Um, so the biggest mindset shift that I have had to give myself is seeing everything as opportunity instead of work. Mm. <laughs> and that has that. been, it's, it's exhausting because then you definitely want to do everything. But like using TikTok as an example, when I talk to some of my author friends, they're like, oh, but like posting three times a day, that's so much work. And I'm like, no, it's so much opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's three times a day that you have a chance to go viral. That's three times a day that you have, right. you know, a chance to, to push your content out. So looking at 
everything as an opportunity instead of as a job or work to do has been my most recent, probably this last year, um, shift in mindset. And it's been helpful. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's a great thing because I tend to look at things. um, I always tell people that like being an author is like assigning yourself homework for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really help my um, positive mental attitude when I look at it that way. So looking at it as an opportunity uh, to get words on the page so you get the book out, so then you have the potential to make money is a much healthier way to look at it. So I love that. I love that. So we want to ask you some specific questions about just for you. And uh, one is uh, writing books with diverse characters. Um, what do you wish you'd known about that when you started? Um, I wish that I used my real name <laughs> uh, to hone in on that. Yeah. Um, I, I inadvertently, when I first started writing, whitewashed my name by taking my then boyfriend, now husband's last name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did write diverse characters even back then. My main characters have always been people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't necessarily hone in on their culture. It was just kind of like they were this thing and we moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, as I mentioned, like I, I unintentionally whitewashed my own name. And and for people who don't know, I'm Mexican. Um, So now when I decided to make the jump into romance, I took back my name and I just, I really dug into the culture of my characters, whether it was mine or not. Um, I will say I I lean definitely Hispanic, Mm -hmm. um, but I try not to only do... Mexican characters. So I have Honduran characters and Brazilian characters and Puerto Rican characters and all of those, like what people outside of the Hispanic culture often don't recognize is that we all do things very differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're like, and I, even with like my sister-in-law, we always joke about how like she does tamales wrong and she thinks (laughs) I do tamales wrong because she's Guatemalan and hers are in banana leaves and mine are in corn husks. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's just like those little, those little things that do kind of make us as different and our mannerisms are different. Um, and a lot of our, our language is different. Um, so I just really honed in on that with, mm-hmm. with my more recent books. And I felt like I made that decision after surprisingly. Um, so I read Roxy Noor's The Hookup Equation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If anybody has read it. Um, and the heroine is Hispanic and I felt like that was the first time I ever felt seen in a book. And I didn't Mm. even realize that I felt underrepresented until I read that book and was Mm. like, oh my God, that's me. Mm. Like her dad was me. Her mannerisms were me. Her making fun of the fact that breakfast burritos were her favorite burrito and that made her a bad Mexican was me. (laughs) It was just, it was so strange. And after that, I was like, I want people to feel about my books the way I felt reading mm-hmm. that one right um and I appreciated it all the more because Roxy isn't a Hispanic author mm-hmm. <laughs> um mm-hmm. and it was just it's been one of those examples when I have friends who are like well I'm not that so I can't and I'm like uh-uh go look at Roxy she did it right mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um so that was kind of like just an intentional thing and it was so um 
eye opening, I guess, when my when my first contemporary romance released to see the love on social media that poured out from people who felt right. represented having read That's that book. Awesome. And it was it was a feeling as an author that I don't ever want to lose. Mm-hmm. So it's just a very intentional thing now that like mm-hmm. I would like my books to represent the world that we live in. Um and that is a colorful one. Right. Right. I love that. I love that. So what did Roxy get right for those, yeah. you know, authors that are not um she, the first and foremost, she did not lean on negative stereotypes. And I think that that's, that's the hard thing with a lot of people is that they lean on, on those negative stereotypes that, and I'll use like my own ethnicity as an example, that like all of the Mexican characters are here illegally or having, you know, some type of confrontation with ICE and immigration. Like, I don't want to read that in a book. Other Hispanic people don't want to read that in a book. If you're African-American, you don't want the negative stereotype perpetuated that, you know, your African-American hero comes from the ghetto and slings mm-hmm. drug on the corner and has a crack hole mom. Like that's an untrue mm-hmm. negative stereotype in sure. that community. Um, so what the biggest thing was that she didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, what she did really well was like the little things in, in a funny way, I guess. Right. Like, Mm-hmm. was her heroin gushing as she's eating a burrito and then saying, I'm probably going to like lose my Mexican card because breakfast burritos are my favorite burritos. Right. Um, and when she gets dressed up, she's doing her, you know, winged liner and red Celine lipstick. And mm-hmm. her, I think what really hit for me, um, which I'm so kind of, I guess, shocked that, that she, and I don't even know if it was intentional, but um, that it was done so well was that the heroine's, father was very um overbearing in a protective i know what's right for you kind of way even mm-hmm. though it's like to the detriment of her like he's so sure that the actions that he's doing are like the right ones that he doesn't take into consideration how it hurts her and that's just oh, so yeah. common in in mexican culture for like mm-hmm. the men to just assume that like they know best right um right. So it was things like that that were, I don't know, it just really hit the nail on the head for me. And it was, and it wasn't overwhelming. It was just sprinkled throughout, um, like the right amount that was needed. I just, everything in there was perfect for me. That's great. Do you suggest that uh, white authors who write diverse characters get sensitivity readers? I think it depends on the subject matter to be entirely honest. I Mm -hmm. don't think that it ever hurts to have a sensitivity reader. Right. Um, but I mean, I don't know. That's hard. Mm -hmm. I think, I think it really depends on the subject matter, Mm -hmm. um, and how well you know what you're representing. I will be entirely transparent in that. Like my book that has a black, um, character and there is a scene of, of police brutality. I did not have a sensitivity reader, but I was really confident in, in what I was, was writing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't feel that I need one. And after a thousand plus reviews on that particular book, I think that that was the right call to make because mm-hmm. I wouldn't have wanted somebody else to curb that scene for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I think that, that that scene needed to be what it was to make the reader understand what I wanted them to understand, which in that instance was that 
this is what people of color do face on mm-hmm. a fairly regular basis or what they fear facing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted them to feel that. So I think it depends. I do think that if you in any, like, I think that white authors just need to kind of check themselves and ask, am I writing negative stereotypes? And mm-hmm. if the answer is yes, then get a sensitivity reader and just know that you probably need to rewrite 90% of whatever it was that you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's why we see so many complaints with like the Rita Awards and the RWA Awards that like books that are winning that have people of color mm-hmm. are sitting on negative stereotypes. Yeah. And it even goes mm-hmm. to like the, the LGBT community too, like. And that's why for those who have seen like kind of the drama on TikTok about a particular book that perpetuated a negative stereotype of somebody in the trans community, it was because you're sit like they're leaning into negative stereotypes and vilifying that community. Mm-hmm. So as long as you're not doing that and you can honestly ask yourself that question, then I feel like you should be fine. But if you are using any negative stereotypes, even if it's necessary for it to be there, like if you have a book and you're like, yes, it just, it's relevant to the story, they need to deal with ICE and immigration, Mm -hmm. then get a sensitivity reader. Right, right. Um, Okay. And just be cognizant that like that is a moment where you definitely need it. But if you just happen to have a character that is of this color and you only present the positives and the positive stereotypes, Mm -hmm. um, because there are funny positive ones for every culture too like as long as you're leaning into those then you're fine right okay I think I love that answer thank you yeah I think that's (laughs) something that we all need to be aware of and it helps to talk about it there's a lot of tension in the writing community about how to do this and how to do it the right way or the wrong way so I think that's really good advice so yeah so shifting gears a little bit, um, we also yeah. wanted to talk to you about some of your marketing stuff because um, it's just, I went and looked at your website and it's got, you've, I can tell you've really leaned into sort of like you're saying your heritage and I love the, it comes through in the graphics, but. Um, oh yeah. I shove my Mexicanness in people's faces when it comes <laughs> to like <laughs> my social media and my, and my website. It is like you. And I will say part of that is because I am very white passing. <clears throat> um, yeah. So I, I make sure that people know. <laughs> yeah. But it's very, it's very cool looking. I love it. So um, talk to us a little bit about your marketing. So I saw that you do book boxes and that was one reason I was interested in talking to you. Cause I think that's something that a lot of authors are kind of interested in, but we're a little kind of hesitant to, it seems like an awful lot of work. So tell us, how did you get into doing the book boxes and kind of like how often do they go out and how you, how you do those? So it definitely is a lot of work. I will <laughs> say um, part of the biggest reason why we retired my husband last year um, is because he does a ton with the uh, boxes. Um, and I think that it's, it's good to tell yourself that anything that draws a full income, a full-time income requires full-time hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so if, if you are a full-time author and you want to like then add on this thing and your goal is for it to earn a full-time income, mm-hmm. then just expect to have to put in full-time hours. Um, but so my, I had the, the pleasure of attending um, Romance Author Mastermind in 2019. Mm-hmm. And um, two of the presenters there were Dr. Jennifer Lynn Barnes, who mm-hmm. discussed fandom. Mm-hmm. And Willow Winters, who discussed merchandising and her uh, big book lover box. Mm-hmm. 
And I kind of took what I got from both of them and married it into, into one. So I will say my um, book boxes, they stand entirely separate from me, Daniela Romero, the author, Mm -hmm. um, as its own, its own separate entity. Um, My books are not ever featured in there more than once a year, if that. Um, But there are really great ways to do it as an author too, um, Mm -hmm. that I've seen people like Willow, for example, do. And it, I think more so depends on how prolific you are because you don't want to be sending people your old books if they already have them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but if you were somebody who releases quarterly, you could do a quarterly box very successfully. Yes. Um, it's nice because it's anything that's subscription-based is reoccurring income. Um, yeah. And we, we do operate on a pre-order basis. So technically, we have the money in hand to invest in the next box prior to it shipping. So we're never working at a loss, which is, I think, super helpful. Um, yes. I don't like I don't like being scared with my money. I like to just know I have this and can go do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are definitely lots of moving parts. I would say the most time consuming is customer service emails, mm-hmm. which thankfully I have an amazing uh, manager who does the bulk of those for me. <laughs> <laughs> because I found that I started turning into a really angry person when I had to do customer service emails. Um, but yeah, for ours, it's, it was really just the decision to want to cultivate fandom for indie authors. Um, Mm -hmm. if you are familiar with like the twilight craze and everybody Mm -hmm. wearing like the colon necklaces, (laughs) um, I wanted to be able to have that, but for indies and in a lot of ways, we've been able to do that. Um, and I'm like most excited for our, our April box, which unfortunately is shipping late because of wonderful paper short- shortages. But like we had um, one of Angel Lawson and Samantha Rue's books in there and in, in their Lords trilogy, they have the girl wears like this cuff bracelet that has a skull and the fraternity letters on it and and the author designed the cover so like she made all of this super cool and super original to them and we found a factory to like do a die cast and make the emblem that was on that cuff and make the cuff for us um and it's one of those things like you can't find it in a store you can't it doesn't look like other skull things out there it's very specific to the series um, and just being able to make those things that readers would love and treasure and and help cultivate that fandom um, was like the exciting idea behind the book box for me. Wow, it's really interesting. And yeah, yeah. So so you have more than one book box per month, right? Yeah. So right now we're doing two. Um, we were doing three at the beginning of the year and decided to scale that back because of, like I said, paper shortages have been kind of killing us. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause unlike a lot of other, um, boxes and companies, we don't deal with Ingram and KDP. We work with, um, more local printers so that we can do signature pages. So the authors don't have to like sign 500 books and put them in boxes and ship them to us. Mm-hmm. So they just sign pages and then those go to the printer and they get put in during binding. And those printers do not have the buying power that like Amazon and Ingram do. So during this paper shortage, they're getting hit a lot harder, Mm -hmm. um, which is causing some delays. So we did have three boxes right now. We kind of reverted back to our original two, which is the Bully Me book crate, um, which does 
dark bully enemies to lovers and like mafia romance. Um, and then the supernatural book crate, which caters to new adult paranormal romance. So I think this is really interesting because in certain, certain things you hear, you know, in the community, in the writing community, one thing that you hear sometimes is that romance readers, they just want eBooks. They don't want print books, but obviously you're sending them print books and they Mm -hmm. like them. Right. So, (laughs) so there are romance readers who want print books. Yeah. So I think, um, I think there's a lot of contributing factors to that. I think that TikTok has increased this wave of print readers. Um, and we've seen, yeah, I know for, I agree. Myself, for myself and a lot of author friends, we've seen this uptick in our print sales and mm-hmm. credit that to TikTok. Um, also during COVID, we saw this huge wave in e-commerce sales. Right. So that's helped subscription-based businesses kind of thrive as well because people weren't able to go out as much um, to purchase the products that they wanted to. So both of those things have been beneficial to like the book box industry. I think on top of that, things that have helped us are we're really aiming towards not just your average reader, but your like I said, like we're trying to cultivate that fandom. So we're looking for fans. We're looking for like those diehard readers who want very specific and niche things. And that's why like for us, the Bullying Book Crate has been our most successful box because it is very niched in. Mm-hmm. Um, and we now, and we evolve a little bit every year. Um, this is only our second year in operation. So we're still making changes and kind of figuring things out as we go. But this year, one of the changes we made was every single book um, in the box has an exclusive cover edition. Mm. Oh, okay. And, and that has helped. Um, a ton because we have readers who who love a particular author like I'll use Monica Murphy as an example she was in um, our last box and a lot of people who love Monica Murphy love her so much that they read the ebook and then they bought the paperback right um but if we send them another one and they already have the paperback they're totally fine because it's just a different Monica Murphy book yeah um so that's been so where before we might have had some like ebbs and flows where people were like, oh, you know, I love this author, but I already have it. Now it doesn't even matter if they already right. have it. They're just so excited to have an exclusive cover edition. Wow. Yeah. So you're giving them something that they can't get anywhere else. And yeah. and they're the like the hardcore fans, the ones that they're not like casual romance readers or bully romance readers. They're very into it. Right, right. Yeah. And so like if somebody wants to do that with you, they just go to your website. Is there a sign up there or? Yeah. So we have a form or we have a form on our website for people who, who want to fill it out and basically submit like their interest. And then we do do a decent amount of just like, I guess, casual networking um, with people. And just, you know, if we see a book that we think would be great reaching out and saying, Hey, like that's one of the benefits I guess, too, of being in the author community. Um, and writing in, in this genre myself is that I know a lot of the people who we would like to feature and it's really easy to just have an open conversation about it. Um, and people do sometimes just still email me directly or DM me directly and that's all fine too. Yeah. 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 Well, how do you, are you packing all these up yourself (laughs) or is that why your husband has come on partly is to, cause it sounds like it'd be a huge job. Yeah. So my husband does 95% of all order packaging. Wow. Um, Because in addition to the monthly box, we do have an online shop. Mm -hmm. 
So we have packages going out every day, even if it's not ship week. And he, that's the bulk of his job and responsibilities <coughs> is doing um, all orders and like shipping and receiving, going through inventory, that kind of stuff. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's complicated. It does sound like it's a completely different beast from writing. Like it's a completely different business. It, it really is. And I think um, there's other boxes I know that have, you know, that have cropped up recently. And it's fun to kind of see how everybody's business model is a little bit different. Um, Cause I have friends who run another box and their box, like I, you can tell that the initial concept behind it was to further promote their own book. So in every box, I think they do three, but there's always one that's theirs, mm-hmm. um, which is a hundred percent fine. Um, but like, that's a way that authors have like, how else can I get my book out there? Right. For me, right. I, I wanted it to be very separate and very different. Um, and I guess that's part of, we've all heard the like, to make seven, like the average millionaire has seven, seven different streams of income. Right. Right. I, I really take that seven streams to heart <laughs> um, and, and want very diverse things so that, and the reason why I think of it this way is because if one fails, it needs to not affect the others. So mm-hmm. like if ebook mm-hmm. sales for most of us failed, that has an impact on our audiobook sales, that has an impact on our print sales, that has an impact on, you know, on all of these things. Um, I wanted it like to really diversify my income, but within mm-hmm. the same market. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause you do have a lot of knowledge about books and publishing. And so it makes yeah. sense to kind of stay in that area. So mm-hmm. So what do you wish you'd known about doing book boxes when you started? Like, is there, are there things that an author should know? Um, There are so many things an author should know. Um, Print time, like knowing how long it would take to get books to me was a huge thing. Granted, we've since changed that model. Before we used to order books through the author, the author would get them, the author would sign them, and then they would ship them to us and we would cover all of that cost. Mm-hmm. Um, but we grossly under anticipated ship times. Mm. Um, I also grossly under anticipated cost of shipping. So that is a big thing. Um, almost, a, I would say a fifth of our cost is, is shipping alone, if not a little bit more than that. Mm. Um, when we send boxes out. So, so having that, I, having your distributors lined up is a really big thing. And then having backups for those distributors for for products. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I would have loved to not be afraid to order from China (laughs) in in the beginning. Mm -hmm. That that has been a saving grace for me. And and I've talked to some friends and we would all love to support, you know, small business and Etsy sellers. And unfortunately, the the reality of it is is that a lot of them just can't keep up with our production timelines. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, a book a month. That's a lot. So recognizing that and just making the decision that's, you know, the smartest for you and also not feeling bad about it because you realize that a lot of your smaller shops are also ordering overseas and then reselling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so kind of getting over that, that mental hurdle um, would have been really helpful, but yeah, just having a really solid plan and having all of your costs broken down is, is 
vital. And then also anticipating website traffic. In the beginning, our website used to crash every Monday because that was our restock day and we would get so much traffic (laughs) that it, it constantly crashed. And I am not the most tech savvy person. So having to figure out how to get on like our own dedicated hosting and finding IT support um, was fun and challenging and frustrating, not only for us, but for our customers mm-hmm. who were like, I really want to go and buy the thing, but the website's not working. Yeah. Wrong Facebook. <laughs> like we're working on it. We're so sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That was all, all really fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. are great tips. So yeah, good things, things things that you probably wouldn't have thought about. So that's good to good mm-hmm. to hear. So going back to like um, the multiple streams of income, you also have mm-hmm. a Patreon. So yes. is that how did you um, how are you using it? And did you find it easy to get your readers to transition to Patreon? So I will be entirely transparent in that my Patreon is very much still in like its infancy. Um, I launched it in January of this year. Um, so it's still slow moving. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have a little under 20 subscribers. Um, but that was also for me, like one of those romance author mastermind takeaways. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anybody who hasn't ever been to Ram, highly recommend going. Even if I try to take one big thing. So from like 2019, the big thing that I took was, um, the boxes and fandom. And in 2020, the big thing that I took was translations. And in 2021, the big thing that I took was Patreon. Um, and just, it's, it's a great way to have reoccurring income. I have several friends who are earning six figures through their Patreons. Mm. Um, and friends who are making a consistent 10 to 20,000 a month off of their Patreon. So like having that ability to grow that into steady income really helps make up for when you have like a dip in sales, right? Right, right. Um, Or when you need to scale back for whatever reason, because life sometimes crops up. Um, And I think the important thing with Patreon is just doing what is within your bandwidth. For me, Mm -hmm. merchandising is is easy. Shipping things is easy because I have the shop. Mm -hmm. Um, So shipping merch out every other month, the shipping assigned copies of books, all of that was like super easy where I have other friends who are like, I don't want to deal with shipping things. I don't want to whatever. They would rather write more free content or I have an author friend who gives her time. So like for different tiers, you can get um, a Zoom call, like a group Zoom call or a one-on-one Zoom call mm. with her um, and kind of be involved in, or, you know, in that process, I have a friend who does like zoom writing sprints with mm-hmm. her readers <laughs> where like as as she's writing they they can like read it on the screen and oh, wow. provide input and they're like in the process that's not something I could ever do but like for her <laughs> that that really works and she loves that like fan engagement oh my goodness um, I would be so frozen I couldn't type a word if I did that <laughs> but yeah, Patreon has been fun and I'm still learning it, but I do, um, I'm friends with Katie Robert, who I feel like is the Patreon, Patreon goddess mm. <laughs> who most of us have, have been learning from. So anytime I have questions, I ask her, but one of the things that she had mentioned to me that I found really useful was like, it is good to start early so that, cause you never know when your moment is going to hit. Mm-hmm. And it's so much better to have all of that groundwork there already to kind of take advantage of 
of that momentum, if a book really takes off or something on TikTok really takes off, than to be scrambling to chase your own success. Right. Right. Um, so, and again, it's, it's just another opportunity. Very true. And I, I mean, it's, I think, you know, sometimes we talk to people that they've done something and they're really far down the road, like with you and your book boxes, you're far down the road, but with your Patreon, you're just starting. And it's good to hear from people who are just starting something that, you know, if you have 20 people, that's a great start, you know, and that's encouraging if you're just starting something new. And it's worthwhile, even at 20 people, um, like you'd be surprised the people who subscribe, if you have higher tiers available, mm-hmm. the people who are coming to your Patreon are those diehard fans, right? And right. most of my subscribers are in my 15 to $30 tier range, not my like five and $10 ones. Mm. Yeah, that was something I noticed about yours. You don't even have a lot of people have like a dollar level and you start, I think, at five dollars, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, And the only reason I have for that really is because it was just advice given to me by another author that because Patreon does take a percentage, Mm -hmm. it's not really worth it at anything less than five. Yeah. Good to know. That's great. (laughs) I didn't know that. So there you go. Yeah. I just love that. I love the different ways of that you guys are using it. You know, yeah. um, uh, I'm not one to do free content. You know, I mean, a lot of extra content just because I'm me, but <laughs> I would give my time kind of thing. You know, that would be something I could do. So and there yeah, are so many podcasts that are on Patreon too. Yes. Yes, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> we debate. We're so, we're so bad. Yeah, we we've talked about. Bye, it. You could do a by Sarah and Jamie a coffee tier. Oh, yeah. that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> could use it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Danielle, this has been so great. But tell us what you think you've done to set your, set yourself up for success. Um. <clears throat> I think the best thing that I've done to set myself up for success is to not be emotionally attached to anything Mm. that I have. Um, I am not attached to my covers. I'm not attached to my blurbs. I am not attached to brand or marketing strategies. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I very much am whatever sells the book, whatever sells the product. Um, and even in the box, like we've continually shifted when we needed to and changed from, you know, three paperbacks to two paperbacks and two eBooks. Um, and we, I wasn't, you know, so emotionally attached to the third box that we had that when I realized we were having logistical problems and that rather than having, you know, a negative experience across all boxes because we were running late, it would make sense to cut mm. one to improve customer experience and the mm-hmm. other kind of thing. So like, I think that the best thing that anybody can do for themselves is just not be so attached to anything that it hinders their success. Because okay. at the end of the day, sales matter. And they're like, if, if people want to be a starving artist, like more credit to them, that's totally fine. That's just mm-hmm. not what I want to be. Right. Correct. Um, so for me, it doesn't matter how much in my mind this this image or this cover or this person represents my character as perfectly as I see them. If my readers aren't receptive to them, then it's got to go. Okay. 
Very good. Yeah. Very good. Mm. Great advice. This has been great and really informative. And um, I think it's going to be really interesting to a lot of people. It's going to give them different ways to think about our careers and our writing, you know, how we handle our writing world around us. So um, where can people find out more about you? Um, So my website is maniela-romero.com. Um, okay. And the, if people are interested in checking out the bookshop, it's bookishbuys.com. And we do have a tab on there for authors who want any more information about merchandising or being featured in the box. Um, it's all pretty easy to find there. Okay, perfect. Well, we will have all those links in the show notes and they will be at wishidknownthenpodcast.com. So thanks to Alexa Larberg for editing and producing the podcast. And thanks to Adriel for doing the admin. We'll see everybody next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.